0: Welcome to Present Value.
1: Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm Lauren Gergel, president of the Healthcare Club at Cornell. Today, I'm pleased to introduce this episode with Professor Campbell, a leading nutritional scientist for over 50 years. In the episode, Professor Campbell reviews the start of his academic career, his best-selling book, The China Study, Academic Pushback, and the whole food, plant based diet highlighted in popular documentaries, Forks Over Knives, and Game Changers.
0: I hope you enjoy the episode. And as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at presentvaluepod. I'm your host, Eric Jo. And today I'm excited to welcome Professor Colin Campbell, the Jacob Gold Sherman Professor Emeritus at College of Human Ecology, Division of Nutritional Sciences. Professor Campbell received a Bachelor of Science in Pre-Veterinary Medicine from Pennsylvania State University in 1956, a Master's of Science in Nutrition and Biochemistry from Cornell University in 1958, and a PhD in Nutrition Biochemistry and Microbiology from Cornell University in 1961. He's widely recognized as a top researcher in the field of nutritional science. Professor Campbell has published over 300 research papers and three books, including The China Study, which became one of America's best-selling books about nutrition. And in 2011, he was featured in the documentary Forks Over Knives. In his over 45 years at Cornell, He has served as an advisor to the American Institute for Cancer Research and chaired the board for the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Since 1978, he has been the member of several United States National Academy of Science Expert panels on food safety and holds an honorary professorship at the Chinese Academy of Preventative Medicine. Professor Campbell, thank you so much for joining us today on Present Value. Pleasure. Thank you. Professor Campbell, I have been following your research for quite some time, and it led me to change my diet. Could you first walk us through what is nutrition and how you got into this field?
1: Well, I have to say, I think this is true for a lot of young people. Somewhat accidentally, I got into the field. I was at veterinary school, and I got a letter one day, a telegram from a professor at Cornell to come and work with him, graduate school. So after one year in veterinary school, I dropped out, came to Cornell. That's the mechanics of it, the timing. But more to the point, I was raised on a farm, milking cows, and no one in my family had ever gone to college. So this was all a new territory for me. So when I came to Cornell, I was in the nutritional biochemistry program. And first I did my masters, then took a year off and came back to Cornell in 1958, finished up then my PhD. But in that effort, my own research and that of my professors was basically to design to improve the efficiency with which we can produce protein, especially protein from animal-based foods. I mean, most people thought protein came from animal foods, but so that was my research to show more efficient ways to improve the production and consumption of animal protein because it was so important. I did that. Then eventually, three years later, after a tour at MIT, I was on a faculty at Virginia Tech. There, in the Department of Biochemistry and Nutrition, I was asked to coordinate a nationwide program of feeding malnourished children in the Philippines. So I spent 10 years with my senior colleague at the time, and we were designing a program to feed malnourished children. And at that time, one of the main things to do with these children, as in any situation where there's a lot of malnourished children, the idea was to make sure they got enough protein. Of course, that's right in my territory. That's exactly what I had worked in. Feeding more protein. Maybe more animal protein if possible because that's called high quality. But then at that time, I got the impression from two different sources, one from a study on experimental animals in India, another from my own observation of the children, that it seemed to be some indication that when protein consumption is increased, that liver cancer Increased also. Liver cancer was pretty high at that time in the uh, Philippines and other countries like the Philippines. So that was pretty startling. I didn't think that that was true. But nonetheless, there it was. I had a job to increase protein consumption among the children on one hand. On the other hand, here's this evidence, if you will. So I came back to my home base, my university, and I organized a grant application from NIH that was funded then for the next 27 years. And it was started up with the idea, is it true, is it possible that the consumption of more animal protein can increase cancer development? That was the question, because I'm doubting it. You know, I thought the other side, and it turned out it was spectacular. As animal protein is put in the diet, cancer rates start to grow. And not only that, experimentally at least, we could turn on and turn off cancer development by simply increasing or decreasing protein consumption, respectively. And of course, the protein we were using, by the way, was an animal-based protein, casein, from cow's milk. Coming from the dairy farm as I did. That was pretty hard to digest, no pun intended, of course, but the idea that animal protein could do this. Also, just to jump ahead, it turns out plant protein did not do that. Plant protein didn't have the capacity to turn on cancer. So that was a symbol, if you will, It's certainly a very strong indication that maybe we should look a little deeper. How does that work? You know, What's the mechanism in the biochemical and so forth and so on? How does it apply to human populations? That came along with the China study later on when we did a very big comprehensive study in China on that question. You mentioned that nutrition is not taught in medical school. Why is this the case? Well, that's the subject of my new book, I've been sort of aware of this, a lot of us have, but I didn't know it was so stark. There's not a medical school in the United States or in the Western world, and I think true to a great extent in China and Eastern, you know, Asian world too. Nutrition is just not taught. That's a question, just a question you just asked. And so it turns out that if we go back in history, we see that nutrition is defined differently from the practice of medicine, from a biochemical sense that is to say that nutrition is the combined activities of all the nutrients in food working together in a very highly integrated manner when we consume those nutrients they all work together i call that process holist or holisty. in contrast the medical system doesn't rely on that idea fundamentally they believe that disease can be controlled may be cured may be reversed by just taking one chemical at a time and attacking one particular disease or one particular mechanism of the disease. That's drugs. So the medical system is reductionist, as I say, highly focused, focused, focused at every level, the way it's practiced and delivered in the clinic, the way we study it and so forth. On one hand, in contrast, nutrition is not that. Nutrition is basically, as as I said, it's everything working together. So it's more a matter of the kind of foods and the combination of foods that we consume on a regular basis. That's a quick answer, and that came from my review of the history of nutrition and cancer research in particular, going back through the 1800s and even into the 1700s. There, it was fantastic. I mean, I got very excited when I saw the evolution of this idea, because back in 1800s, when cancer was a curiosity, people didn't know really what it was, if if you will, There were two theories as to how cancer forms. One theory was that cancer is a local disease, you know, locally caused, maybe specifically caused by a particular agent and, and so forth. That was called the local theory of disease. In contrast, the other view was that cancer is a constitutional disease, which means it's the whole body, maybe the whole environment, especially the whole food, you know, all the things working together. So that was the constitutional nature of disease versus the local theory of disease. And it was a healthy debate at times during the 1800s. But finally, in the late 1800s, the local theory of disease became the dominant view as industry started to form and as people wanted to solve their cancer by treating with specific something. And the main thing that they were interested in those days of solving cancer was by surgery. Secondarily, thereafter, Radiotherapy became available in the late 1800s. And then, of course, chemotherapy. So chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and surgery are the three protocols by which people get their cancer treated. And that's lasted until today. And nutrition, in contrast, is just not part of that idea. And so in medical schools, for example, they don't teach nutrition because the students are all walking down this pathway of reductionist philosophy, if you will, which drug does what, which disease is being affected, and so forth and so on. And so we develop drugs in order to solve our problems, whether it has to do with treatment or whether maybe it has to do with prevention of something. And so the medical system is a very reductionist, it's based on a very reductionist philosophy. Nutrition, in contrast, is basically a, a holist idea, which is much more amenable to individuals taking care of their own health. The reductionist form of disease usually requires third-party intervention. Namely, we have to have doctors sort of administer this information and this, this treatment. So medical schools are basically reductionist, nutritionist, holist. And so whether it was intentional, conspiratorial, or whatever the reason, there was no interest in a medical school to teach these students something about nutrition because that takes away the business that they're planning on having. That's really what it was. I mean, the model, especially when it's combined, when the scientific information is combined with intellectual property protection that's offered by our system, that combination, when intellectual property protection plus the, the science, that combination makes for an economic opportunity. It's that simple. And so we have a contest between what people can do for themselves cheaply as opposed to what, let's say, third-party can, people can do expensively. That's the difference. Your most well-known research is the
0: China Cornell Oxford Project, also known as the China Study, which went on to become the best-selling book. Could you tell us about how it started?
1: Yes, in 1980, at that time, when the United States and China were first started to talk to each other, in a sense, it wasn't too long after President Nixon went to China, there was a Chinese delegation came to the United States, and they brought along with them a team of some people and and one of the people in that group was the probably the best known scientist in China. His grandfather was a compatriot of Sun Yat sen, who overthrew the dynasty in nineteen eleven. But in any case, Dr. Chen, Chen Zhou he basically came to the United States with a team. To start with, they were in Albany, New York at the time, stopping there to visit with a laboratory. And uh, he wanted to spend some time in the country, in this country if possible, so he came I contacted him and he came here. So he was the first senior scientist from China to come to the United States at that time. Came to work with me for about eight, nine months, doing some research, wonderful fellow. We made a really good close friendship. And we learned when he was here that the Chinese government had just published an atlas of how much cancer existed within their country, basically for about 2,500 counties for about two dozen different kinds of cancers. So this atlas was just coming out at that time. And so the American TV show called Nova, it's the public PBS station. Nova at that time knew of this story from China that mainly was focused on the high rate of esophageal cancer in certain areas of China. That means throat cancer. So the media people knew that that was quite a story. And there was some talk about that cancer being related to the food that was being consumed there. Namely, it was fermented food, pickled vegetables, for example. That show showed four times in our country, but in a very short order, because at that time, I think true is in China, but in the United States, everybody's wanting to see something about China. I said, watch that show. Well, I learned about that show when Dr. Chen was with me, and my graduate student told me, so I said, uh, did you see that show? So I watched the show. Well, it turned out Dr. Chen, his good friend, was the director of that program to establish those, that survey of how much cancer resistance across China. His name was Li Juniao, and he was a, appointed by the late Premier Zhou Enlai, who was dying of cancer at the time. And what what had happened in the 19, this was the 1970s, between the years, I think it's 1974, 76, about 600 and some thousand Chinese workers, many barefoot doctors, and other technical people, they went across the country and surveyed to see how much cancer existed in the different counties. As I said, about 2,500 counties, and they came up with this, this beautiful color-coded maps showing you know, where cancer is high and where's low across the country. And I I learned that when Chen was with me, and so we said, well, I said, you know, I th- I think we ought to get together and do something. Maybe I can get some money from our government. So we thought that was a good idea, applied for funding from the National Institutes of Health. And so there was a review, and it turned out that, yes, we got the funding. I also had the good fortune of having one more really significant partner in the University of Oxford. So Richard Peto and his colleagues there, Richard Peto was a world-renowned epidemiologist and statistician. So it was a partnership between Cornell-Oxford and two Chinese academies. One, Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences. The other was the Chinese Academy of Preventive Medicine. So in any case, we organized that study. And the survey was conducted quickly, efficiently, and really with tremendous reliability in 1983-84. And so we collected that information. We wanted to measure everything we possibly could because I'm thinking at that time that nutrition is not about individual nutrients. It's about everything working together. And it's not about books on one disease, like cancer, like a whole lot of diseases. So the Chinese government gave to us their data on heart disease and a whole lot of other diseases as well. So we ended up with a marvelous collection of information. And eventually, we got about 24 laboratories from around the world to participate in analyzing blood samples, urine samples, food samples, and so forth. And so we ended up with a with a book, a monograph, a very big monograph of data that was published in 1990. And if I, I'm, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but basically in 1990, when that book came out, it made a lot of news. In fact, the New York Times picked it up, and it was the lead story in their science section. The USA Today newspaper was a front page story, and some other Saturday even and in and other places. All of a sudden, this study became fairly well reported. And uh, I had done some research on what we were looking at, the kind of data, and what I was interested in was to see what kind of associations might exist between the consumption of, of all things, animal protein and the kind of diets that come along with animal protein consumption, and to see what relation that might have to various disease rates in China. And it turned out, the provocative data that we were getting in the laboratory at that time, turning on cancer with animal protein, turning it off, maybe with the intervention with plant substances, turning it on, turning it off kind of thing, and some other information, it turned out in China that the data that we got, even though animal protein was not consumed at very high levels, on average only like 10% of what we do here as far as concentration of that is concerned. But even in China where the levels are quite low on average, even in that low range, we saw a highly significant correlation between increase in protein consumption from nothing, more or less, up to a very small, very low level. We saw these high degree of correlation. Cancer started to appear, heart disease, and so the Western diseases, if you will, in a sense that was indicative of a really substantial confirmation of what I was seeing in the laboratory. So between the laboratory, you know, we're looking at mechanistically and all these kinds of things, in the human population, we're seeing the same thing. So at that point, you know, and I, I, I just to jump ahead, I also had spent quite a lot of time in Washington in policy development, food and health policy development, you know, working, giving testimony before congressional committees and stuff like that. So my experience in the policy arena, and then having a partnership in Oxford, in another country, together with some other places, together with the data we had, both from the laboratory and from the human setting, that combination really hit me, said, wow, our whole Western system of medicine is to be questioned, seriously. I mean, I had these conversations with my colleagues in China as well. In China, I was learning a little bit of something about Chinese medicine. And so to get a feel for maybe you could say what the history of Chinese medicine is, which is very, very old, as you know. So that idea of exploring Eastern medicine, and in some ways it was kind of like an idea of exploring Eastern medicine with Western medicine. And I saw something from the Eastern medicine philosophy that was just fantastic. And so... There you have it. I mean, I eventually published the book and I started getting a lot of pushback. That's part of the story. Really, really serious pushback here at this university as well as at the national level. And I was sort of aware, you know, there would be some pushback. It's pretty obvious. But the seriousness of that pushback was beyond comprehension. Very, very serious. And so it raises some new questions about what I'm talking about here. But in any case, that whole story, science, science, Let's say business, if you will, policy, history, all is coming together. And so that's what I'm telling the new book, trying to track these changes historically in regards to what it meant for, let's say, even the nature of science, let alone the nature of scientific investigation in the case of medicine. So it turned out now for me to be a really spectacular idea. and it was first published in the book, The China Study came out in 2005. I co-authored that with my son, who's a physician, by the way, now carrying out some of this research at University of Rochester. But we wrote the book, and I didn't know at the time whether it was going to be successful. The publishers thought it wouldn't be. They said I, I should be writing all kinds of recipes and stuff like that, and I didn't want to do that. I said I had nothing to do with that. I wanted to tell another story. Well, it turns out the book. Now, this is 15 years later, 16 years later. It's really set all kinds of records. It's been seen around the world, and it really does go to some very fundamental questions about what are we really doing in Western medicine, let's say. How does that play out? Why is it that way? How long has that been going on? How effective is that? I mean, all these really big questions. So that's why I'm at the present time, and I think the implications of this information that I kind of got excited about in a nutritional sense, not just for the Western world, United States or China or Asia, whatever. It's basically, it's for, this is a story for the whole world. Let's expand on the pushback.
0: Where do you think it came from? And how did you maintain your commitment to your research in face of the
1: opposition? It's a good question. In the first instance, I really started to see it in a very serious way, you know, at the national level. I was on a National Academy of Science panel, expert panel with 12 other people who were writing a book on diet, nutrition, and cancer at that time. That took place in 1980 to 82, and the report came out in 1982. I was quite active in that, obviously, and I was only one of two of the 13 members of that committee who had actually been doing research, you know, at a fundamental level on this question. And so what I was seeing by that time was already that animal protein is a problem. And so I wrote the chapter in that report and then they asked me to represent them to give testimony before congressional committees. I was on PBS television, I was in some magazines. All of a sudden, I mean, that wasn't intended, but it became quite visible you know, with that report. And obviously I was getting all kinds of invitations to participate in public gatherings and that sort of thing. And I was, of course, talking about my view of this from the perspective of the research that we were actually doing, showing that consuming animal protein-based foods can be a problem, it could be a big problem. That, in turn, caused things to happen. For one thing, my profession, and I had just been nominated for being the president of my profession nationally, a group in that organization got together and petitioned to have me expelled from the society. It didn't it didn't work, but that's number one. I had to go to Washington to go to, for that hearing and so forth. Lots of things really happened after that. It was just one thing after another. They didn't throw me out of my society. I kept going, and kept doing what I was going to what I wanted to do. Went on through the nineteen eighties, if you will. There were actually information circulated in writing that I had stolen money from my grand. I had done all kinds of really bad things. And I, I was really amazed at the pushback. And it was pushback on the Cornell campus took up right about late 1980s, early 1990s, when we had a new director. I'm being very explicit about this. We had a new director of the Division of Nutritional Sciences at Cornell, who later became known as one of the most, if not the most significant consultant for the dairy industry in the world. He was also very prominent in Washington. He was the chairman of the or chairman or director of a couple of major policy committees and uh, had responsibility for some recommendations to the American public about things that, you know, were clearly a serious, serious conflict. It was a conflict here on the campus, it was a conflict in Washington, and a conflict elsewhere. So as time went on, my situation only became worse because he disposed and his subsequent successor were disposed to do everything they could to stop me from saying what I was saying. And that happened off campus especially, but it also happened here on campus. And they took my course away from me when I was teaching, which a lot of students had petitioned to have it restated. And at that time, I found it really pretty appalling because I had in our department, which was at the time ranked number one in the country, I had the largest research program in the department. I had a lot of graduate students, I had a lot of colleagues. were are doing work, I brought in the most funding the most publications, so it was, wasn't like I was sitting idly by, just doing strange things. I really had a very prominent program. And in spite of that, they still, this one person, director of the department, really went out of his way to try to destroy not only my reputation, but in some cases, participate in other things in Washington. Because of his prominent positions in Washington, Cornell often had prominent positions in Washington regarding food and health policy. And so, as it was at that time when it first came out, I was the congressional liaison for the entire biomedical research community of about 85,000 scientists in this country. And so, I had a pretty prominent position myself, you know, with respect to the U.S. Congress. That created problems, too, because I, I did have quite a lot of visibility. And so, every effort was made here on the campus here at Cornell, as well as elsewhere, just to do everything that they could to destroy my reputation and get me kicked out of, or was even a petition to have me expelled from the university as a professor.
0: So in the China study, you define the term whole food plant-based diet. How is this different from vegetarianism or veganism?
1: Good question. I got into this not because of any interest in vegetarianism, zero. In fact, quite frankly, The vegetarian movement, which I first more or less learned about during the 1970s and 80s, they were kind of opposed to what I was doing, because I was using experimental animals. To be honest about it, it had had nothing to do with that. And also, the word vegetarian in those days had a pejorative meaning. Obviously, there were some people, very good people, who really took up the idea, loved it because of animal welfare. That's true, and they would tend to push their interest. But it's kind of hard. You know, to try to sell the idea, you know, to the general public, vegetarianism, it always remained a fairly small fringe movement for decades, actually. Later, then learned, and I say that was during the early 80s, but then about 1990, I learned of this new word called veganism, which was formulated in some around the 1970s, I think, which meant no animal foods. Vegetarians, about 10% still use dairy. Vegan means 100%, you know, no animal food at all, don't even wear animal products. And so those two concepts, vegetarian, vegan, they were the prominent words that were known to the public. But they were, as I say, they had some baggage because to try to sell, let's say, policy development or try to sell ideas in the area of human health, if you come into the table making that point of view known and you're allowing yourself to be called a vegan vegetarian, it doesn't work because that's not, that wasn't really science. That was, that was as I say, more of an ethical, you know, good reasons, I don't argue with that, but it's the fact that it wasn't, that wasn't the issue. So I had the opportunity in early 1980s to be on, it was still on another committee of NIH, reviewing grant applications for the kind of research that should be done. And in the early 1980s, this idea of plants maybe having some value, health value, was just coming to the fore, and there was some uh, inquiries that me had made by researchers to study this question and research. So I was on the committee that determined which kind of research was funded, and I was asked by my colleagues, since I was a nutritionist, if I couldn't explain. Where's this coming from? you know, What kind of nutrition are we, are we talking about here? These were cancer oncologists and molecular biologists and so forth. And so I, I had to, they asked me if I'd come to their, our next meeting to give a review of what I thought this kind of interest was coming, where it was coming from, what did it mean? To be honest, and the reason for telling them about vegetarian veganism, I didn't want to use those words. I was trying to think of, you know, there's, there's gotta be a better way to describe this because I wanna focus on the science. And so I came up with the word, plant-based. It wasn't the best choice, I don't think, but that's what I did. Plant-based, and then a couple of years later, I added the word whole. Whole, food, plant-based. And essentially, because the nutrients in whole food don't act the same way when they're put in pills. So this is not about nutrient supplements. That's not nutrition. That's a pharmacological derivative or distortion, I even would add. It's a pharmacological distortion of the concept of nutrition. So I wanted to use something that really focused on the science, whole food, plant-based. And I didn't know where that was going to, but now, these many years later, that concept it's uh, really getting a lot of attention around the world, in the industry, policy, whatever. What are some
0: notable benefits of whole foods, plant-based diet? Does it work for everybody from
1: any background? From my experience, and that means from the scientific, my interpretation of the science, as well as my learning about trials being done on people, so it's a combination of seeing some of the literature on this here, uh, interpreting the literature and so forth, Here's my interpretation of love. Everyone can benefit from consuming this kind of diet. Some are going to, it's a matter of life and death. If they have heart disease, for example, and it's quite serious, if they go on this, they cure their heart disease, almost 100%. And if they have some other diseases, it's remarkable. When they switch to this kind of diet, the diseases tend to go away without drugs. On the other hand, there are other individuals who maybe, you know, aren't so susceptible, you know, to the hazards of eating the wrong food. And a small, very small fraction of people may live to be 95 and still smoke cigarettes, for example, or eat the wrong food, and they can get away with it. So everyone basically can benefit and will show that they're able to be beneficial for them. Some will see a lot of benefit, you know, saving their life on the one end of the spectrum. For others, it may be losing some weight See a drop in blood cholesterol levels, which are associated with heart disease, for example. So there's a range of responses. But the more, most important thing to remember that all these responses that occur are in a positive direction. They don't go any other way. That is to say, if they start using this kind of whole food plant-based diet, that you know the heart disease is going to get worse or whatever. That doesn't occur. So I can't say that every single person is going to solve every single problem by this, I don't say that, but the odds are, the weight of the evidence, you know, very comprehensively for everyone is the same.
0: How are meat and dairy industries lobbying the government to influence
1: regulations? They have been lobbying very hard to participate in the development of public policy. And I've been there, I I know what's going on at that level. It turns out that maybe the best illustration I can say for that is that the United States Department of Agriculture which is looking out primarily for the livestock industry. The Secretary of Agriculture has been known for years. It's kind of like a revolving door. In other words, they come in, they become the Secretary for a certain administration, if you will, and then go back to industry, okay? So the industry has this really close association, not surprisingly, you know, with policy development at that level, and they know what they're doing. In the drug industry, that's the Department of Health and Human Services, at that level, the Secretary there Two, will just sort of trade almost like trade positions back to the industry when they're either in power or not in power, and so there's always been a close relationship, and not, as I say, not not too surprising. However, that situation for me has become very difficult and very challenging for a country now because of the court, Supreme Court decision in 2010, that's called the citizen United decision, where money from corporate interests and rich people could be used to support election of politicians, if you will, and campaigns. So we've now ended up with a position, since 2010, we've ended up with a position where we have the best government that money can buy. And so the politicians are getting elected to a great extent are being elected because of the support they're getting from the corporate sector. This happens not only in the area of health, it's particularly tragic in the case of health, So we got people coming into into governmental positions in the Congress who are basically beholden to their supporters. It's that simple. And so that that decision made at the Supreme Court level in 2010 needs to be reversed for all sorts of reasons. But that there alone really has enabled the powerful industries to operate through a powerful government at times, working together, and they set policy. That's the way it works. They set policy. And as I say, it's not just a case of health. But I I think in the case of health, for me, it's tragic. It's, you know, utmost tragedy because health is personal. A lot of us happen to believe that health is a right. It's not a privilege. And I'm certainly one of those people. And so if people are not given the information that they can use, you know, for their own use, you know, make their own decisions, if they're not told this information, that's really what it comes down to. So in policy development, that's where information is floated for the public, more or less, the official guidelines and that sort of thing. If that information is not clear as to what the science is saying, the public is not knowing about this. I'm not one of these people. I believe in a free market. I am very strongly believe in that. And I don't believe in having a lot of regulations and that sort of thing to repress activities. Some regulations are required. We need some structure in that system. But quite frankly, now it's run amok, in my view. And so the industry can, through governmental activity and so forth, they're able to almost do whatever they want in a sense. So the, the American public is not getting information from the scientific community that's possible. So the, the public is not even in a position to make their own decisions on their own behalf.
0: So you're featured on a popular documentary, Forks Over Knives, and the new documentary, Game Changers, has brought the whole food plant-based diet into the spotlight again. What are your thoughts on this resurgence?
1: Well, Forks Over Knives was a film, documentary, that was, has been highly successful, and that's based on the China study, the book I wrote. So I, yes, I was featured there with my friend who is in the heart disease area, Dr. Caldwell Essethon. So the Forks Over Knives have been hugely popular. and it's kind of helped to spread a lot of the word. And I'm happy to say that they've been doing you know, quite good things in that sense. There was a second film, though, four or seven after it was you know, brought out to the public. The question I would get is, why haven't we heard this before? That was probably the most common question. So my oldest son, actually, basically directed a new film called Plant Pure Nation that was started with my testimony before the Kentucky state legislature along with my friend, but at that time, we went to the Kentucky State Legislature. I basically told what I said, and that in turn led to some political activity, if you will. And so, we wanted to show, my son wanted to show, why people haven't heard this before. Well, really, you can see a lot of why it hasn't heard before, but going to the political arena. So, here I'm, like I said, before the Kentucky Legislature, that was all filmed. That became almost, if you will, the starting point for the film itself. He comes back and then does some things by way of showing it really works. That film, I believe it's it's on YouTube, I guess, or Netflix at the moment. But both films were in the theaters for a while. So those two films, Game Changers, came along a little later. I know that quite well. It's basically showing how athletes can also benefit. That's an old story, I have to tell you. This is is not, not something new. There was some brilliant research done on that question over a century ago in Yale University by two professors there, who actually were taking students in physical activity programs like ROTC, and later, you know, high-class athletes, put them on this kind of diet, and their health, their their performance improved. It was really, really impressive. That was published. That was not cited, in unfortunately, Game Changers. So, this is not a new, not a novel thing. You know, as far as Game Changers is concerned, this is more of just a showcase for the modern day, but quite frankly, this information has been around. The reason I'm telling all of this is not only because the game changers failed to take note of that, and they knew about it, they failed to take note of it because they wanted to make their own story, but the other thing is that kind of information that came out in the early 1900s, very high quality, superior scientists, carefully documented this information. That was a challenge at that time to the emerging view that protein was so important especially animal protein. And that was gathering steam, and it was becoming popular, and athletes had to have the protein supplements and so forth and so on. This research came along and showed, no, that doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. If people go on a whole food plant based diet, they actually improve their performance. And so in the modern day, I've had interaction with some world-class athletes, personally, and they have changed. I'm talking to people at the peak of their career, you know, Hall of Fame football players or All-American, and they see the same thing. Most athletes are a little tentative to try this because they've always been told, you know, you have to have more protein, 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 which can build some muscle mass. That's not the issue, but they do it at a cost, and the cost is twofold. Number one, they don't improve their performance, except in weight kind of things, maybe. They don't improve their performance, number one, but number two, when they retire, they have a very high risk for heart disease and cancer. So the long-term health is, is compromised. I think the physical activity thing, we call athletics or however we want to speak of this, that's part of the game plan here about food. Food affects us physically. Food affects us as far as what kind of disease we get. The food we choose to eat, the new idea on the block is food has a major effect on our environmental problems as begin to rise. So it's It's a very comprehensive kind of effect. that What we choose to eat has a major effect on us individually, as well as with our society, our friends, our family, and now with the planet. So this is a big story.
0: The viewers of all these documentaries may wonder if plant-based meat replacement products such as Impossible Food and Beyond Meat are equally healthy as whole food, plant-based diet. What are your thoughts on these meat substitutes?
1: I think sort of have two answers, I guess. One answer, it's a step in the right direction. Because for one thing, it's saving, for various reasons, it's saving on the consumption of the wrong food, basically animal-based food. So that's, that's a plus, no question about that. What concerns me this about this new activity though, is that the protein being used in those foods, for starters, is a lot of it's GMO. That worries me, most of it. It's coming from soy, and soy is mostly genetically modified, if you will. So we're, they're relying on, on some food that may turn out to be a serious problem in the future. So yes, step in the right direction perhaps, but that's not enough. And there's some other problems with this food also. It tends to be high in fat. And when we add fat, and I'm not talking about just high fat foods. When we add oil to this kind of mixtures, these mixtures to give us some flavor, if you will, those oils are pro- mostly they're out of context to the plant, for example. And it can be, as we say, pro-inflammatory. So it can actually lead to a higher risk for heart disease and cancer in the long run. We don't have enough evidence on that yet, so it's that I have to label this my speculation. Step in the right direction, yes. yes but that's not what we want to rely on. You mentioned that
0: starting with meat replacements is a step in the right direction. How did you transition into a whole foods plant-based diet? How does your typical daily diet look like?
1: Well, the transition, there's been some really, really interesting trials been done, not published, unfortunately, in most cases, but professionally done as best that we can. And I'm going to, in this case, cite the work of two of the colleagues of mine, Dr. Caldwell Esselton and Dr. Dean Orange. They took people's heart disease, put them on this diet, the heart disease reversed. It's that simple. Dr. Esselton has some really fantastic research, and more recently, a lot of people doing this. and almost everyone saw this great improvement. So it's almost like, I think it's almost fair to say that heart disease can be cured as long as the people keep doing this, okay? The same thing happens for diabetes. The same thing happens for a variety of other things. A lot of this information I'm now referring to hasn't necessarily been professionally published, but recently my son, who's a physician, co-author of the book, that's my youngest son, he in turn at the University of Rochester and was organizing some trials on breast cancer patients, stage four breast cancer. Can you imagine that metastatic breast cancer? And just test the same idea on these women, done very, very thoroughly, very professionally. You know, it's been reviewed by all the appropriate committees and so forth. And in addition, he just published a paper in one of the top journals on chronic kidney disease. Chronic kidney disease, there's 40 to 50 million people have chronic kidney disease. He put a 69-year-old man who was overweight, had diabetes, had hypertension, he had chronic kidney disease. He was about ready for kidney dialysis, which is a very expensive process, as you may know. So he put him on his whole food bed with that, monitored the changes. The man was on nine pharmaceuticals, drugs at the beginning, just dropped them within four days, half of them, and the rest mostly disappeared. Their use was, it wasn't necessary. His blood pressure came down. He lost a lot of weight. And most importantly, after four and a half months, his kidney function measured by what we call glomerular filtration rate, GFR, that increased by 73%. The man saved his life. And that's been published just in a very good journal. So this diet really does work. There's no mistake about it. And I've seen a lot of cases, close to 1,000 lectures since the China study came out, all invited lecturers, and a lot of them are to medical schools. So I, I speak to a lot of medical audiences, and the number of people who come up to me after the lecture, very emotionally, that will tell me, save their life, you know, and they're really quite gratified is as a, as a lame word, but they're very excited about it because they've seen these remarkable results. I keep hearing this all the time, and I myself, we started changing our diet. I'm coming from the farm. I eat, eat milk and eggs, that's who I was. My wife, too. We started changing our diet in 1980 when I started seeing some evidence that was pretty convincing. And so we quit eating red meat, okay, but we kept eating chicken and things like that for a while. We certainly were still using dairy and eggs until maybe, it think about 10 years. Finally, I said, no, this is enough. I've seen the China study. I've seen the laboratory data. We went 100%. But actually, we went net was about 1990, I think, and at that point in time, my wife had been diagnosed with what uh, they saw it as advanced melanoma, which is a very serious kind of cancer. We're interpreted because I saw the, the evidence in the microscope. She may have had it before, and she was already getting better. It was already going, going away at that time. The doctors didn't see it that way. They wanted to operate, take out the lymph glands because it had metastasized to the lymph glands. They wanted to take out the lymph glands in that particular area of her body, they want to put on chemo? And she said, no. Well, the doctor, attending the doctor, got a little bit nervous and very angry about it, said she was crazy. He said to her, you know, if you come back here in six months' time, I can do nothing for you. That was 15 years ago. And now she's 79. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of stories I've heard. I've seen it, of course, in this case firsthand. And so I've, I've seen a lot of cases that don't get properly recorded. Because for one thing, it's difficult to publish that kind of stuff if you're not a professional. That's problem number one. And even if you are a professional, <laughs> you gotta work pretty hard to set up the study to do it properly. That's what my son is doing at the University of Rochester. I'm sure a lot of the listeners would
0: love to know what you consume on a daily basis. So Could you give us an idea of what your dinner table looks like?
1: Yes, in the morning, I think probably it's kind of crazy, but most of us in this business eat oatmeal, believe it or not, without milk, by the way. Oatmeal, we do, I do all the time. Oatmeal with fruit, different kinds of fruit. We pick a lot of fruit in the summertime. We freeze it. In the summertime, we have fresh fruit and maybe some some nuts, you know, on, on the surface. Then at lunchtime, it's mostly a good, healthy salad. And then in the evening, there's a, actually now there's a wide variety of dishes that can be made. My wife has her own. Our daughter's had two versions of a publication of her book called The Chinese Society Cookbook. Our daughter-in-law has done the same thing. And so we, there's cookbooks out there that people can now get. And those recipes are designed to create tasty dishes. We can still use herbs, spice, spices, flavors, and that sort of thing. You know, having different ethnic cuisines in the world, it's kind of nice for wherever you live. And so, you know, and they tend to be distinguished, I think, in large measure by the kind of spices and herbs and flavors that are being used. So we we can do that too with this food. So it's a lot of variety. How can listeners learn more about your work? Well, we have a nonprofit organization that actually arose from my class on this campus that was canceled by the guy who was beholder to the dairy industry and his successor. And unfortunately, this is another issue. It really has to do with academic freedom here on the campus and elsewhere. I have seen that in spades. Where academic freedom is being eroded. If we cross the line going too close into the territory that is, you know, that suborders, if we go across that line, we can get in trouble. And for anybody who doesn't have tenure can get in deep trouble, they know that. And so they tend to be quiet. A lot of faculty aren't even aware of this problem because they don't have to deal with that issue. But when you're getting into the area of food, if we're into the area of food and personal health, and we're getting money from the public, And when that, in fact, is repressed in some way by university administrators, that happens because the people don't necessarily have tenure. I've had tenure in myself since I was in my 30s. So fortunately, I've had tenure during my entire career. At Cornell, I've been a full professor with tenure, so I've had all I ever wanted as far as academic stature is concerned. But still, they will do everything they can to try to repress that. To me, that is a serious existential threat in the world of academia these days. Not just here at Cornell, but elsewhere too. So I'm kind of passionate about that and I go around talking about it because we need to solve that problem.
0: Professor Campbell, thank you so much for your continued contributions to advancing nutritional science. And thank you very much for being a guest on Present Value. Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Jonathan Tin and Alice Forwald from the Present Value team. I'm your host for this episode, Eric Joe. Our engineer was Sam Lopowitz. Music by Paddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pamango. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present
1: Value.